Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. William Butler Yeats is a titan in the world of arts and letters. He was born on the 13th of June, 1865, and died at the age of 73 on the 28th of January, 1939. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1923 and was a tireless champion of Irish independence, serving as a senator of the Irish Free State. He is best known for his poetry, but was also a prodigious writer of plays, co-founding the Abbey Theatre. Yeats was also, and importantly for us, a prominent occultist, being a longtime member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. His commitment to ceremonial magic and mysticism were not what he tended to present to the world, but they were essential aspects of his worldview. Yeats articulated a vision of freedom from oppression, specifically Irish independence, and beautifully realized some of the greatest manifestations of symbolist and modernist poetry ever written. And his work was deeply infused with occult themes and ideology. He dedicated an entire book, which he published twice, to articulating his particular occult vision, a book that could easily be compared to his contemporary Aleister Crowley's Book of the Law in its attempt to lay out an occult doctrine on the nature and meaning of spiritual life. If Crowley was a successful occultist who wished he could be better known for his poetry, Yeats was a successful poet who wished that he could be better known for his occultism. His best-known poem, The Second Coming, read through the lens of his occultism, shifts from a message of doom to a message of hope. The skeletal night clutches the rose, hope for the dawn of a new pagan millennium. Today, we solicit the occult confession of Nobel laureate William Butler Yeats. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am joined this day by uh, Savannah Verrett, sister of the 84th degree. Hello. Ready for some Yeats? Yeats for Yeats? I guess so. I like poetry, and he's a theater guy, so we'll probably get along. There you go. Yeah, let's let's find a way in. Find our way in here. Uh, Dan Rosendale, Eye of the Archive. Welcome to the show. It's been a while. It has been. Always been a pleasure to be here, though. I mean, it's been a while on the mic, but uh, I want to let everybody know, Dan is uh, working tirelessly behind the scenes. He is uh, doing social media for us now. He's doing YouTube. What else do you do, Dan? (laughs) Dark pool. Well, (laughs) let's make it clear. I just don't, I don't get out much, right? (laughs) You and me both, man. That's why we podcast. I've got, I've got my, I've got my, my hands in, in all occult confessions activities. <laughs> yes, if you're experiencing something occult confessiony, probably Dan's fingerprints are on it. <laughs> all right, let's pledge it out. We, the members of the, the secret, secret order, order of alchemical actors, actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, Savannah, open up those plugs. Plug, plug, plug. I am trying to get a few patrons into the mix, uh, even though we are recording early. So these patrons are from the perspective of this episode about a month ago. Uh, But we want to welcome Bethany, uh, Octarine Dream, how about that one, and Alex A. Welcome. Welcome, yes. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Ilion... Delgadillo, 
、uh, just started listening and is addicted. So we got that note on Facebook. If you can't review us, if you're listening on Spotify and can't review us,、uh, feel free to drop a review on Facebook. We we love that.、Uh, just send us a message. <laughs> we'll always take a message of.、Uh, <laughs> I mean, don't tell us that you hate us. <laughs> don't send those. We get those too. But you know, if you're feeling inspired and have no place to express your love, we always read a an email yeah, either, or a, a either DM. Either inflate our egos or give us constructive criticism.、Otherwise. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> I am not opposed to that. We do get good notes from from folks. Sometimes, you know, there's a moment in an episode where the sound's not right or whatever. We are happy to hear that stuff.、Uh, and uh, Texas Rosa. Uh, who I think we've heard from before was super thrilled with our Vril episode. So thank you, Rosa.、Uh, okay, and let's make a couple of notes here while Dan is with us. YouTube is a thing. We are almost a thing on YouTube. <laughs> we do yes, have yes. YouTube. YouTube is a thing.、Um, for our listeners, YouTube is a free online video streaming site where you can <laughs> upload videos,、um, and we we so happen to be on there.、Um, we are uploading.、Uh, Weekly videos.、Um, currently, we are uploading archival、uh, videos of、um, of episodes past,、uh, but we we will soon get to a point where it's you know as soon as it's coming up on Spotify, it's coming up on YouTube as well.、Um, they're fun little visual aids to our episodes because sometimes the content can get a little heady. <laughs>、um, so yeah, right now、uh, the latest as I'm recording this. Is the Chinese traditional medicine episode very cool?、Um, so everything behind that, before that, is up on YouTube, and from every week here on, one more episode will be uploaded. Excellent!、Yeah. So check us out. Subscribe on the YouTuberies, if you will. Plug plug plug. Let's talk for a second about poetry, shall we? I understand that a lot of people think poetry sucks. I I get it. I get it.、Uh, I don't personally. I was an English major in college,、uh, but I get that poetry can be a little difficult. It, it's it's like a an artifact of a bygone age in some ways. Sometimes I feel the same way about theater. I don't know about you guys. You know, it's one of those things that we did before we had TV.、Mm. Uh, but it's also.、Um, uh, This sort of like distilled deep way of expressing complicated thoughts, and I think I'm saying that about both theater and poetry.、Uh, yeah, as opposed to a TV show which will dribble something out to you over the course of God knows how many episodes, in a couple hours of theater or in a few lines of poetry,、uh, you can really cut to the heart of of some really deep stuff. So that's my way of pitching to you that you are going to enjoy today's conversation about Yeats. This will not bore you at all. He is, after all, a ceremonial magician.、Uh, any, any, any other words of encouragement, you guys, before we get into this? Well, I've always been a fan of poetry.、Um, call me an old man, I guess. I think it's cool. <laughs>、um, I just find abstractions really interesting, and I think, like you said, poetry and theater are able to capture. Complex emotions in in a in a way that favors the intelligence of the audience,、um, and I think that's really taken for granted. Like like a play or a poem, it respects the ability of a reader or viewer to put things together for themselves. It might take a little bit of work, but for the most part, once you get there, it's a very satisfying experience. So I'm 
I'm going into this with with open ears and open arms. Um, we'll we'll see what what Yates has to offer. Hey, I mean, here's the thing: the beauty of podcasting a bit of poetry is that we're going to do some of that digesting for you. So it's going to be lighter lifting for you on the Easy other side. Easy listening. <laughs> Easy listening. There you go. It'll be just like Kenny G. Okay, <laughs> let's get started. Occultism was central to Yeats' work, although he tried not to foreground it because his audience was largely Irish Catholics. On his mother's side, there was a strong genetic predisposition to interest in things supernatural, including second sight and omens and fairies. His maternal uncle, George Pollocksven, was a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, an organization that, as I mentioned, Yeats ended up belonging to for 35 years. He began his foray into occult organizations with the Dublin Hermetic Society, which was formed on the 16th of June, 1885, and he was elected as its president. The society became a lodge of the Theosophical Society, which Yeats did not remain in, although he formally joined the esoteric section of the Theosophical Society in London two years later. Skeptical of some of the claims by Helena Blavatsky, I think we're talking specifically about some of her supernatural claims, you know, her materialized letters and that kind of thing, Yeats was asked to leave in 1890. <laughs> <laughs> That's like that's that's some clout being asked to leave the Theosophical Society. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, he pissed <laughs> off Blavatsky or at least her her inner circle. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he was I guess he's a, he's a mystical mind, but he's also he's like us, you know. He's got a kind of skeptical mindset to him too. Not skeptical in a closed-minded way, but you know, he he wants to see proof of things right mm-hmm. he wants to see evidence and and he wants to engage with the evidence but he believes that there's a paranormal aspect to things very much a, a man of he would be a great alchemical actor is what i'm trying to say <laughs> <laughs> or we would be great yates actors i, I don't know yates met mcgregor mathers in the British Museum, and was initiated into the Golden Dawn in 1887. He entered the Inner Order in 1893, so it took him six years to get to the Inner Order. That seems like a pretty short amount of time to get to, like, the Inner Circle. Like, It'll get you through a bachelor's degree and a master's. <laughs> well, not if you're like me, but... <laughs> so. Well, yeah, it's dedication, I think. that I, I agree, Savannah. He's dedicated to his craft there. In 1900, after Mathers was expelled from the Golden Dawn and initiated a schism with Aleister Crowley, Yates was elected imperator of the Isis-Urania temple. So he was very much a Golden Dawn guy, even, you know, after Mathers and, and Crowley broke with them, which, you know, we talk about in the Crowley episodes. Ceremonial magic remained a significant aspect of Yeats's life and an inspiration for his work for the rest of his life. Yeats said, I'm quoting him here, The mystical life is the center of all that I do and all that I think and all that I write. Doesn't get any clearer than that. Much of Yeats's work was focused on politics, specifically Irish nationalism. He hoped to marry his vision for Irish independence with his occultism when he attempted to form what he called the Celtic Mysteries, uh, sort of like a uh, mystery cult, I guess, of sorts, at a ruined castle at, uh, oh boy, Lough Key, I'm going to say. It's L-O-U-G-H. All my UK listeners get so frustrated with me. <laughs> you said he had one? 
he wanted to. He was hoping to found the Celtic Mysteries, but it didn't work out. He he dreamed of reestablishing an Irish holy land in Ireland, I guess at this castle, as opposed to the Christian holy land of Jerusalem. He wanted a sort of new Irish national religion or religious sensibility based on Irish lore in the homeland. Oh, okay. You see what I mean? Yeah. Sort of viewing Ireland as having been colonized essentially by Christianity, but being essentially Celtic. Yeats believed that occultism was a remedy for Roman Catholicism that, in his opinion, crippled the will of the Irish people. So Catholicism crippled the will. Occultism is the cure, the medicine that cures what ails. He thought that the new millennium would usher in the end of Christianity and a revival of paganism following a cyclical pattern. This magical Irish order never came together, but it provided inspiration for Yeats' tale, Rosa Alchemica, which we're about to get into. You know, interestingly, when I was doing my research with the spiritualist mediums, they articulated a similar idea that we were entering a new era of paranormal belief, and and they wouldn't have called it occultism, but I I guess spiritual mystical belief. I believe it. That we're sort of in the dawning of that. Well, how would we know when we were in it? Um, Well, I guess we have to look at the long arc of history, Dan. We look to see the waning of Christianity and the rising of what we call third ways of knowing. I feel like that's happening a lot recently. I I think it is. I see people on the internet talking all the time about like all this sort of like witchy stuff. And I know like it's kind of like a fad at the moment, but a lot of people, I think they say that people are less religious nowadays than they've ever been in like the history of the world or whatever. Or like Christianity, I guess, is what they mean. (laughs) Scholars tend to agree, including me, that where we're at is we're seeing a decline in organized religion, but not a decline in belief in things like God and the afterlife and that sort of stuff. I think that's what I meant. These are persisting. (laughs) Right. But they're persisting in these other places. And and that's Yeats' vision. That's what Yeats essentially predicted. Rosa Alchemica is narrated by a writer who lives amid statues of pagan gods and leather-bound books, wary of avoiding any feelings of bitterness that might come from living through passions too directly or investing in any system of belief. So he's sort of like, you know, this scholarly character who studies occultism but doesn't want to get too close to it because he's afraid he'll just be disappointed. Now, when you say live among pagan statues, are these like... Walmart mannequins that are like at his dinner table. Or... <laughs> well, this is pre-Walmart, but yeah, let's say he's he's got like the bust of Zeus just sitting at the end of his table. I'm fine with I that. I love that. <laughs> I hope he makes a plate for Zeus as well. <laughs> you really should. You don't want to offend him. Uh, he's conducting alchemical experiments though in his study with great success, but he's feeling no personal enlightenment as a result of these things. He says, I had dissolved indeed the mortal world and lived amid immortal essences, but had obtained no miraculous ecstasy. So he's sort of like playing with stuff, you know, on the table, but he's not feeling anything. He's not having an internal mystical experience. One night he's burning incense and he's contemplating his own profoundly moody malaise. He's very emo. What? In the the darkest of nights. He's got his eyeliner on, playing the cure. (laughs) And and Michael Robarts comes knocking at his door. You you shouldn't know who this is. A fictional character. But Michael Robarts is a recurring fictional character in the Yates universe. Yates did have his own alternate universe, sort of like... Lovecraft or 
I don't know. Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> we need the Yates Cinematic Universe. There, yes, <laughs> there's the Yates Cinematic Universe. Or I guess Poetic Universe. So this guy, Michael Robarts, is in this universe and pops up in different stories. He comes knocking at the narrator's door. The narrator more or less equates to Yates himself. So we could think about him as Yates. And he has wild red hair, Michael Robarts, and he looks like something between a debauchee, a saint, and a peasant. So he's either going to screw you or pray for you or farm your turnips. (laughs) Robarts and the narrator had been friends at school in Paris. He grabs the narrator's censer and fills it with amulets. So the censer is what you put your uh, incense in. So he grabs it and puts his own stuff in there. Uh-oh, you never you never know what's going to happen when your friend does that. I have come to ask you something, and the incense will fill the room and our thoughts with its sweet odor while we are talking. I got it from an old man in Syria who said it was made from flowers, of one kind with the flowers that laid their heavy purple petals upon the hands and upon the hair and upon the feet of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, and folded him in their heavy breath until he cried against the cross and his destiny. Roberts begins to speak on a revelation he's had, and the narrator himself falls into a kind of dream state, having a complimentary revelation that inspires him to join Robarts in what is to follow. All things that had ever lived seemed to come and dwell in my heart, and I in theirs. And I had never again known mortality or tears, had I not suddenly fallen from the certainty of vision into the uncertainty of dream become a drop of molten gold falling with immense rapidity, through a night elaborate with stars and all about me a melancholy exultant wailing. I fell and fell and fell, and then the wailing was but the wailing of the wind in the chimney. And I awoke to find myself leaning upon the table and supporting my head with my hands. I saw the alembic swaying from side to side in the distant corner had rolled to, and Michael Robarts watching me and waiting. The narrator is caught up in the ecstasy that had been eluding him previous to this evening encounter with Robarts, and is literally carried away by the alchemical debauchee into the night. They travel westward by train, and the narrator is struck by the impression that he is not really in the company of Michael Robarts, but that Robarts is dead, and has been dead for decades, implying that Robarts has had an occult rebirth. Whoa, I love those twist endings in movies. <laughs> it's you not know. over yet. Oh no. Double twist. <laughs> it's not the sixth sense yet. <laughs> the narrator enters a small did we ruin that for you, Dan? <laughs> no, I've, I've seen the sixth sense. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> oh my god. The narrator enters a small fishing village, and he and Robarts are cursed at by a fisherman as they work their way into town. I assume mostly nautical based curses. Ye scallywag fishmonger things like that yeah so what is a what is a can we can we get some more you think some more yeah. nautical uh... <laughs> yeah, off the top of my head ye rotten barnacle i don't know oh, that, that one's pretty good i, th- I think i'll use that pretty, one yeah. <laughs> i'll put that in my codex of curses <laughs> ye four-legged starfish i could go on <clears throat> so, apparently Apologies to our listeners who aren't in kindergarten. The narrator ends up alone in a room where he's served fruit and given a book in a bronze box, which happens to me 
fairly regularly. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> I was about to say, that sounds like the start of a jigsaw trap. <laughs> <laughs> or a Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> The book teaches that all thoughts have an independent reality and come to be possessed by spirits. Robarts enters, so he's been sitting alone eating fruit and reading the book, and then Robarts comes back in and tells him he must learn an antique dance, uh, which he must perform at his initiation into this secret cult. It's a little bit like the Celtic mysteries that Yeats wanted to found. This story is sort of based on Yeats's vision that never came true. After a little, I had grown weary and stood under a pillar watching the coming and going of those flame-like figures, until gradually I sank into a half-dream, from which I was awakened by seeing the petals of the great rose, which had no longer the look of mosaic, falling slowly through the incense-heavy air, and as they fell, shaping into the likeness of living beings of an extraordinary beauty. Still faint and cloud-like, they began to dance, and as they danced took a more and more definite shape so that I was able to distinguish beautiful Grecian faces and August Egyptian faces, and now and again to name a divinity by their staff in his hand or by a bird fluttering above his head. And soon every mortal foot danced by the white foot of an immortal, and in the troubled eyes that looked into untroubled shadowy eyes, I saw the brightness of uttermost desire as though they had found at length, after unreckonable wandering, the lost love of their youth. Despite the ethereal beauty of this union with the pagan gods of the ancient world, Yeats suggests there's a darker side to the dance. The narrator ends up dancing with an immortal, with black lilies in her hair, possessing a wisdom more profound than the darkness that is between star and star. Like a good symbolist, Yeats leaves the identity of this goddess open, but the black lilies suggest a goddess of death, sort of like the Norse god Hel or Egyptian Nephthys or the Greek Persephone. The narrator is horrified to realize that he's danced with the one who was more or less than human, and who was drinking up my soul as an ox drinks up a wayside pool. After the dance is ended and the immortals depart, the villagers break out uh, the fisherman's equivalent of pitchforks. Fishing rods? (laughs) (laughs) It'd be hard to, like, haul anchors to, you know, swing at your enemies. And they chase the narrator out of the building, presumably killing the other members of the Temple of the Alchemical Rose. The narrator looks on this episode as if he had been caught up in a kind of illusion that he has since recovered from by seeking refuge in, quoting here, the only definite faith, namely Christianity. Yates here is playing to his Catholic audience. So he, he says, you know, I, I had this intense, crazy dance with God's experience, but I'm a Christian now, so don't worry about that. And also fishermen came and killed some of us. <laughs> and they were also Christians. Right, naturally. That's why they <laughs> killed them. <laughs> don't you know your history, Savannah? I do That's now. what Christians do. I know. Yeah. <laughs> In my opinion, this... Yes, Christianity wins in the end, but Yeats is sort of playing like Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. Rosa Alchemica is a story where Christianity triumphs in the end, but paganism has all the best lines and seems pretty awesome by comparison because you get to dance with the gods and, Mm. you know, smell that incense. Would you guys have gone along with Robarts if given the chance? I don't know. The whole being killed by fishermen thing kind of puts me off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you're Yeats, you sneak out the back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if some random guy showed up in my bedroom with really cool red hair, I'd go with him. You know that's a lie, so <laughs> Yeah, you know that is a lie. He thought he was a friend, right? 
Yeah. Or he was just like, no, you're just some random guy, but I'm going to go with you anyway. <laughs> yeah, he did know Michael. It seemed to know Michael Robards. Oh, okay. After all, well, he's a creation a friend, of Yates, yeah. I'd probably do it. <laughs> hey, come on. I'm going to start a cult out here. Just get on the train with me. We're going That's west. basically what you did, so... <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. So you guys would have followed Michael Robarts, and we now know. Yeah, that's a stupid question. Of course, you would. When's it? When's the uh, red-haired Rob character arc gonna happen? Season three of Darkpool. Jacob did have red hair for some time. Maybe it was him. That's true. <laughs> He's my Michael Robarts. I'm the uh, I'm the girl with the lilies in her hair. All right, let's get into uh, Yates and automatic writing, shall we? For Yeats, art was a kind of magic. The powerful use of symbolism in a ceremonial rite was analogous to its use in his poetry. His ability to call forth emotion in his readers was akin to the ceremonial magician's ability to call forth energy in a ritual. His ability to create poetry itself, powerful enough to evoke the necessary emotions, was, in his opinion, contingent on his contact with what he called his higher or antithetical spirit, uh, another name for that in Yeats's, uh, I guess, theology was his daemon, D-A-I-M-O-N, his daemon. Which is different from a demon, right? Because uh. <laughs> I've seen that spelling before, and I've always assumed it just meant the same thing, but I wasn't sure. It's removed from a Christian context, and so in that way, I think it's not a demon, although Yeats would also spell it in the with the E as demon. So... I guess in context, it just means like evil spirit. Innocent. For him, I don't. Yeah, I mean, in a Christian context, but yeah, since we're snapping it out of the Christian context, he calls it an antithetical spirit. So it's just sort of like your opposite. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you're you're you since you're not purely good, your opposite is not purely evil. It's just the opposite of you. Ooh. Opposite tendencies, characteristics. Cool. Bizarre. So like Savannah, your demon, like if you were into vanilla ice cream, your demon would be like, No, chocolate ice cream for me. Thank you. <laughs> your demon, Savannah, has no concern about mechanical birds. In fact, invites them into the house. Well, she's crazy. So <laughs> <laughs> she... Yeah, that... Yeah, that one is crazy. Yes. That one is. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yates' motto at the Golden Dawn was demon est deus inversus. So this is his definition, meaning that the demon was the inverse of God. Not necessarily evil, but the complementary aspect of God. Among his fellow occultists, Yates was called Didi, <laughs> but also the demon after his motto, Didi. Deus est Deus inversus, D-E-D-I. It's an acronym. Who did he call Didi? I miss... God? Everybody called him. That was his nickname. Oh, okay. He was Didi. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he, at the Golden See, Dawn. Everybody had a nickname. I would never be able to take that seriously. All I can think of is Dexter's Lab. Like, his oh, sister's yes. name is Didi. Didi! <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be like a 1900 dance. <laughs> I don't think you'd have well, yeah, that Yeah, but reference. now... Me, okay. me hearing that now, I laugh. I laugh at that name. I see, I see. This was not merely, or, or uh, Kirby's Dreamland is uh, the the king. True, King Dedede. There you go. Ooh. This was not merely, and well, we're nerding out here, aren't we? In it, and not in a poetry way. Let's get back to poetry. <laughs> this was not merely an opposition, but a fundamental unity as well. So, again, so talking about the daemon, God and God's inverse, the daemon, are not merely an opposition. They are two halves of the same coin. 
So in this way, it's not really like Satan and the and God. It's God and God's inverse. It sounds like yin and yang. Yeah. You know, you know Dan's vanilla chocolate is pretty good because, you know, neither is good or bad. They're just different. You know? Well, one's bad and it's chocolate, so. <laughs> Ouch. Well, we know which half of the coin you are, Savannah. <laughs> My daughter would disagree. Uh, he believed that the demon was the opposite of the individual. His demon was female, for example. So male to female, female to male. In fall of 1917, Yates married Georgie Hyde Lees. He'd met her at the British Museum, where it seems he tended to meet people. <laughs> and he met her when she was 17. They married when she was 25, and Yates was 52. Oh. A little bit of May-December there. Mm. Are you shaming the May-December romance? Mm, he's 52 and she's 25, he's 52. and he met her when yeah. she was 17. He's going to father two children by her. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> I like Yates, how you also skimmed over the part where they met in like a museum. Yeah, they was the same place he like, met Mathers. I think Yates was constantly in museums, just meeting people. So it wasn't like he was trying to pick up chicks that day. He was just always at just waiting. Museum. He would just sit by himself on a bench and be like, "Whoever What's sits up? here, yeah, that, that's my new <laughs> friend." Sometimes it's McGregor Mathers, and you join the Golden Dawn. Sometimes it's a seventeen-year-old girl, and you I get feel married. like that's the poet's life. You just chill and wait, <laughs> right. wait for something to happen. <laughs> You got to flow. You got to flow with it. He, okay, so, but Savannah, this is going to get even weirder. I, mm. I got to be honest here. So, you, you I okay. guess your point, your, your, your sounds are well taken. <laughs> Yates had wanted to marry the Irish revolutionary and actor Maud Gone, who was more his age, uh, but she'd rejected him for decades, although they had a very close friendship. So, he proposed to her daughter, Isolt, but she <laughs> also turned him down. Oh my God. What? That's Georgie weird. was number three. She was the third in line. But as it turned out, she was a very fitting match, despite their age difference. They married only three weeks after Yates had proposed to Isolt. No. <laughs> oh, my God. I, the reason I'm telling the story is not only because it's sort of Peyton Placey, but Yates was very concerned uh, about himself getting up in years, and he was worried about his vitality. So he was, you know, middle-age-ish, 52. He believed that these women, or that a woman, could help him remain connected to his daemon, who, remember, he believed to be female. A suitable union, he thought, could sustain him. In 1934, 17 years into his marriage, he had what was then called the Steinock Procedure, which we know today as a vasectomy. He'd had two children with Georgie in their first two years of marriage, that was quick. Uh, and I guess they don't call them Irish twins for no reason. And at that, you know, after he'd had two children, he wasn't especially concerned with fertility or progeny, if he ever was especially concerned with that. Rather, there was a popular belief at the time that the procedure of asectomy increased male vitality and sexual virility by preserving the sexual fluids. Georgie was actually a practicing occultist and began automatic writing on their honeymoon. Yates was fascinated, and it inspired him to write A Vision, a book of his, which we're going to spend a lot of time on now. Uh, and Georgie should be given some credit for that book because of her role in her, with the automatic writing, essentially inspiring and feeding that, that text. So ladies, the next time your man doesn't want to get a vasectomy... To start... <laughs> 
automatic writing? <laughs> like, <laughs> or it, it increases sexual vitality by pre- preserving <laughs> the go. sexual fluids. That'll yes. really convince That's them. the line. Nothing That's else the line. does. Well, some guys believe that it has any impact on f- fertility. or a ver- It does have on fertility, but virility. So let's talk about a vision. Scholars have tended to read a vision as having been metaphorically pulled from the higher spheres and the daemon, but it was actually the product of an occult working not unlike what Crowley accomplished with his first wife Rose in writing the Book of the Law. The original text published in 1952 was dedicated to Vestigia, also known as Moina Mathers, uh, uh, one of his cohort at the Golden Dawn. Yeats presented the book as an occult text, derived through a series of twisting and turning esoteric sources with a message about the nature and fate of the soul. A subsequent edition, published in 1937, began with a quote by his patron Lady Gregory and suggested that automatic writing was a means for the spirits to suggest good poetry to Yeats and not necessarily authentic occult truths, but he was being a bit disingenuous there. It was the 1925 version when it was first published that he was sort of presenting it honestly. This was really an occult text. And then he sort of backed down from it in the second version and, and hid that those aspects of it. The material for a vision came from the spirits and was about metaphysical concepts articulated in the best way Yeats knew how. Yeats expected the book would be read exoterically as a work of art, but could also be read esoterically as a work of occultism. So you had your choice. Got me? If you want to just enjoy it as an artistic product, you can, but if you want to read it for the occult message, you can also do that. So would you say it's Yeats' own fault that he's not taken as seriously as an occultist and more as like a poet? Yeah, he constantly backed down from it. Mm. He, he was wary of being perceived as being like Crowley, I think, for example. He didn't want to be associated with those those kinds of folks, even though he literally did associate with those <laughs> kinds of folks. It was just on the down low. Yeah, the public perception of him, he wanted to keep more or less squarely in the poet realm. and Yeah, the mysticism was constantly around him, but, you know... That Irish Catholic thing was was tough to get over. And I actually think he was lying a bit, <laughs> to be honest. Having read A Vision now, it's difficult to read this as anything but an occult text. There's whole parts of this that are just like working through the faces of the moon. Like, this is not good poetry. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's interesting theory from an occult standpoint. I mean, that does get him a wider audience, too. Like, oh, hey, this is for artists. And then the artists read it and they're like, what the heck? This is cool. he, he actually, in the first, you know, in the introduction of the book, he's like, you have to skip these parts if you're only interested in the poetry. Oh, really? Because those parts are, yeah, like the phases. It would be like, you know, if we're doing a dark pool, in, in the middle of dark pool, we just like stop and lay out the phases of the moon and their meaning and how they relate to, you just can't do that. <laughs> That's not art. That's not storytelling. Hmm. That's cool that he like, warned them though it's like yeah. hey, by the way if you just uh, skip past uh, you know this <laughs> chapter and this chapter you'll be fine like we do in podcasts and youtube now and we'll say uh, from minute six to minute eight you might want to skip if you have young children you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. so there's a double frame to yates visions so let's get into the some of the storytelling he does around the visions the first are his characters owen ahern and michael robarts he's back uh these both of these characters Aher- Ahern and Robarts were in other occult-themed short stories in the, what is it, Yeats poetic universe. (laughs) Robarts is the Dionysiac artist of the two, and Ahern is the staid intellectual. 
give or take. So, you know, Ahern is like, you know, sitting around the library and Robarts is doing his, you know, train riding cult starting thing. Robarts has gone on a great adventure, taking advantage of Yates's report in Rosa Alchemica that he was dead to live off the grid. So, turns out he's not dead. He survived that whole fisherman thing. <laughs> but Yates wrote that story and made everyone think he was dead, so people weren't... I guess the fishermen quit hunting him. <laughs> Thank God. They had to be back on the water man. in the morning. Right. <laughs> Fishermen are a patient bunch. If they wanted to kill someone, they could certainly kill someone. They just wait for you to go out to sea, and then they grab you. Uh, Robarts went to Krakow to find occult secrets because of its history as the site for John Dee's alchemical and scrying experiments in the Renaissance. And while he was there, he happened upon a secret book, Lucky Chance. Significantly, the book wasn't in some great library, but was being used to prop up his bed at his hotel, and the maid had used several pages of the book to start a fire. This is very Yeats, and, and very Yeats in the, in the occultism of it, that, you know, these elevated, grand texts and things are actually BS. The real stuff is often, you know, being used for toilet paper. Hmm. Inspired, he starts on the road to Damascus and discovers diagrams from the book written in the sand. So somebody's been drawing these diagrams that he had also seen in Krakow. They're repeating themselves. They'd been left by a tribe who he eventually tracks down and learns how this Arab tribe happened on their occult knowledge. And this gets us into the second frame. So there's two frames. Remember, Robarts is the outside frame. Then there's an inside frame. Then we get to the actual occult story. The inside frame uh, is about an ancient Arabian palace where a wise man named Kusta ben Luka had attempted to teach the caliph his secret knowledge. But the caliph didn't understand and ordered all men teaching things he didn't understand to be executed. Whoa, I'd be in trouble there. I don't know. I feel like you could muster something up. <laughs> you think I could manage to you explain? Could just, you could just suddenly change. Like, so, yeah, today we're talking about the color red. And, uh, it's important. So, and he'd be like, ah, yes, you can stay. Red is a primary color. It, it is not yellow and it is not blue. This is yeah. red. All your students would be like, Rob, this isn't what we were talking about. You would be like, no, today we're talking about the color red. And from here on out, we're talking about colors. Shut up. I want to live. Kusta ben Luka was imprisoned because he's teaching these, this ex- esoteric chart to the, the caliph. Uh, and four dancers arrive who promise to dance the secret key to the mysteries of the universe for the caliph. Not a great plan because, you know, he doesn't want to hear things he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand their dance. And he orders them all to be executed. Mm. Just before they're hung, the dancers tell the executioner to tell the caliph to look at the ground where they danced. Then they got killed. The executioner brings this message back to the caliph. The caliph sends for Kusta ben Luka, our wise man, who proceeds to explain the drawing that they'd made in the sand with their feet. It is the drawing of the great wheel. Now we're going to get into the Yates theory. Ready for this? Yes, as ready as we can be. Mm-hmm. The great wheel overlaps the 28 phases of the moon on top of the four faculties... The 28 phases represent the journey of the soul toward apotheosis. The four faculties are the will, the mask, the creative mind, and the body of fate. Will is an energy as yet uninfluenced by thought, action, or emotion. Uh, 
We can think about it as an internal, personal force that's directed toward particular ends. A little bit like Crowley. So your internal will, how you're directing your energy. The mask is the image of what we wish to become, sort of like the face we bring to the public. Mm. The will and the mask are subjective because you know they come from us. And they're internal. And so they are also antithetical and lunar. They're the sort of like darker, more personal side of things. For Yeats, this means they're part of the inward aspects of the self. The creative mind is the intellect. So we, it's a little confusing because we think creativity, we think it's very personal. But he's really thinking about rationality there. And the body of fate is the physical and mental environments. They are more objective and what Yeats calls primary. They're calculating and outward-facing as opposed to the more self-oriented will and mask. You got me? So four aspects sort of facing each other. One's more sciencey, one's more arty. He kind of has a point with the, like the the logical nature creativity, because I mean we like like you said it it is very deeply personal. But I mean if you think about any editing process, like half of art is killing all of your ideas, um, or like <laughs> that's any, true. or like any art that's not like interpretive dance. But I mean even them like you know they're they're trying to you're trying to create a product with something creative, and there is a logical process to that. Yeah, yeah, that's the push and pull, Dionysus and Apollo, right? The wheel is in this way reversed. As St. Peter at his crucifixion reversed by the position of his body, the position of the crucified Christ. Daemon est Deus inversus. Man's daemon has therefore her energy and bias in man's mask, and her constructive power in man's fate, and man and daemon face each other in a perpetual conflict or embrace. This relation, the daemon being of the opposite sex to that of man, may create a passion like that of sexual love. A primary or objectively focused man who attempts to live entirely in the light is perpetually at war with his daemon. So if you're constantly editing and (laughs) not producing any crazy ideas, you're going to be at war with your daemon. Antithetical man, by contrast, permits the daemon to flow through the events of his life and animate his creative mind and ultimately achieves, achieves unity with the daemon and within himself yielding what Yeats calls a very personal form of heroism or poetry. So we have to unify with our inner daemon, our muse. Yeats details the 28 phases which work toward the dissolution of the illusion of the self and identity, but also of the illusion of empirical reality. The final three phases are the phase of the multiple man, or hunchback, the phase of the saint, and the phase of the fool, These are the last three phases of the waning moon, but the new moon is not equated with the 28th phase because it represents complete plasticity in contrast to the complete beauty of the full moon. I know. Give me a second, I'll explain. At the full moon, which is phase 15, the mind is completely absorbed in being. So this world, pleasure, this life. At the new moon, phase 1, the body is completely absorbed in the supernatural. You got me? So full moon fully absorbed in nature, new moon fully absorbed in sort of spirit. Okay. And we're moving between these. So all the phases are moving us between these two. Oh, okay. It seems like he really leans heavy into this like opposites concept. Yes. It's yes. just really all over the place. Yeah, we'll get into that. That's coming. Since these phases are difficult to grasp, let alone characterize, I'm just going to let you all hear how Yates describes the fool, just shy of his supernatural ascension. He is but a straw blown by the wind. 
with no mind but the wind, and no act but a nameless drifting and turning, and is sometimes called the child of God. At his worst, his hands and feet and eyes, his will and his feelings, obey obscure, subconscious fantasies, while at his best he would know all wisdom if he could know anything. The physical world suggests to his mind pictures and events that have no relation to his needs or even to his desires. His thoughts are an aimless reverie, his acts are aimless like his thoughts, and it is in this aimlessness that he finds joy. Kustaben Luca had discovered the secrets of the wheel from his wife, a woman like Yeats's wife Georgie who was half the age of her husband and possessed an intense curiosity of things occult. Uh, so Luca is sort of like Yeats's avatar. One night while Luca is working by candlelight as she sleeps, she awakens. The wife awakens and inquires about his work and starts to talk to him in the voice of the djinn. A livelong hour, says Luca, she seemed the learned man and I the child. Truths without father came. She rose and with her eyes shut fast in sleep walked through the house, unnoticed and unfelt. I wrapped her in a heavy hooded cloak and she, half running, dropped at the first ridge of the desert and there marked out those emblems on the sand that day by day I study and marvel at with her white finger. She goes out and draws a diagram in the sand with her finger. The diagram is the wheel and also the gyre. The gyre, getting to Dan's oppositions, is two interlocking triangles or cones facing each other with the point touching points touching the base. Picture two triangles with the points touching, facing into each other. Okay. The triangles represent opposing, intertwining forces. Fate, which is external force acting on us, and destiny, which is the working of our will. The male and the female, life and death, human and daemon. Within the conical gyres are two more gyres that are always contracting as the outer two are expanding and vice versa. So there's a lot of oppositions and push and pull. The inner contracting cones are the opposites of the outer expanding cones. So as the intellect expands, emotion contracts. And when the intellect is at its greatest width, it begins to contract again and emotion to expand and on and on. So we're constantly expanding and contracting. We're reaching an intellectual height, and then we're going back down as creativity expands and back and forth. Like Dan's metaphor of editing. We're going out there and recording all this crazy stuff and saying and doing whatever we want, and then we're coming back into the room, and we're intellectually, you know, parsing and picking out the best bits, and then we're going out and doing crazy stuff again. You see, you feel the push and pull like an accordion. Yeah. There are gyres within gyres and above and below gyres at right angles filling the universe. For Yeats, gyres are just everywhere. Book three of A Vision opens with the poem Leda, one of my favorite Greek myths. Yeats reflects beautifully on the myth in a way that illuminates how his gyre functions. Leda is a beautiful Aetolian princess. She is lounging by the lakeside and Zeus sees her and wants her. He disguises himself as a swan and descends to the lake and seduces and sexes her. Leda conceives and pushes out two eggs. In one are the divine twins, the male Dioscori, Castor, and Pollux. In the other are, the, are Helen of Troy and Clytemnestra. Within their sexual and creative union is encompassed the destruction of Troy and the death of Agamemnon, killed by his wife in his bathtub after returning from the Trojan War. Sex with an animal, a fundamentally bestial act, is also union with the divine energy of the highest god. All of these oppositions are in constant motion in the union of Leda and Zeus as swan. If you're struggling to intellectually grasp the gyres, 
I, I want you to just let the poetry reveal their functioning in other terms. Pain and pleasure, creation and destruction, animal and spirit. Let's hear a bit from Yeats. A sudden blow. The great wings beating still above the staggering girl, her thighs caressed by the dark webs, her nape caught in his bill. He holds her helpless breast upon his breast. How can those terrified, vague fingers push the feathered glory from her loosening thighs? And how can body, laid in that white rush, but feel the strange heart beating where it lies? A shudder in the loins endangers there the broken wall, the burning roof and tower, and Agamemnon dead. Being so caught up, so mastered by the brute blood of the air, did she put on his knowledge with his power before the indifferent beak could let her drop. For Yeats, society itself moves in the same gyre as the individual, with oppositions expanding and contracting. Helen of Troy is a society-altering figure. Leda suggests the beginning and end of an era through the conception of Helen and Clytemnestra. This mythic vision of apocalyptic change echoes back to Yeats' fantasy of the end of the Christian era and the start of something new, or perhaps something ancient. The revival of the pagan world. We were pagan, right? In ancient Roman times, before the year one. Then we were Christian, and Yeats is saying we will be pagan again, the accordion contracting and expanding. You starting to see? Hell yeah. Bring it on. See, we understand poetry. <laughs> we understand a Nobel laureate. Hey, yeah, we're sort of moving from one side of the gyre to the other. Yeah, Like from exactly. one end of the triangle to the other. And, you know, in theory, Christianity was at its height around the medieval period, right? So before Protestantism and... You know, the shifting of the, the breaking apart of the unit, unified church. We can test Yeats' Geyer principle with a partner if we want by meditating on the same idea or theme. Yeats says we will experience complementary dreams. When two people mediate upon the one theme who have established a supersensual link, they will invariably, in my experience, no matter how many miles apart, see past before the mind's eye complementary images, images that complete one another. One, for instance, may see a boat upon a still sea full of tumultuous people, and the other a boat full of motionless people upon a tumultuous sea. Each person is essentially a cone mirroring the other as we move toward union. In addition to moving along the gyres, according to a system based on the phases of the moon, Yeats also identifies each human as possessing a fourfold being. So the number four also is recurring. So these are the parts of you, you ready? You've got a husk, a passionate body, a celestial body, and a spirit. It's also very theosophical. The husk is sensuous and instinctual, and almost the physical body, but not of the body. So the body's separate, but you also have a, a husk. The passionate body is our passions. That's easy. The celestial body is the eternal aspects of ourselves, and the spirit is our mind, our abstract mind. The husk and the passionate body are more terrestrial or physical in nature, and the celestial body and spirit are more spiritual and non-physical. Just like the other four aspects of us, these are paired. At death, the celestial body and spirit emerge from the husk and the passionate body, uh, and they meet each other, and then are subsumed back into the husk and the passionate body. For Yeats, this cyclical rising and falling marks the whole of existence. Each lifetime is not only a movement through the phases, but is dominated by a phase, so that we live an entire life in phase two, for example, and then move through that moon phase dominated by phase two, to all the phases that are related to it, and then the next life we might be in phase three, and on and on. 
it gets way complicated. We don't need to <laughs> so worry are, about are, it. Okay. Do the phases in 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 forthcoming lives would they uh, would they be like less or more? Like, do you always move higher in the phases? Uh, you move around. If, I don't know that Yates necessarily even thinks about it as higher and lower because of the cyclical nature of everything. You're just moving mm. between these different poles. Mm. When we die, you want to know what happens when we die, according to Nobel laureate William Butler Yates? Oh, do tell. <laughs> when we die, the spirit rises at the head, the celestial body at your feet, and the passionate body at your naughty bits, with the husk staying where it is. The passionate body experiences a review of your passions and desires. Get to remember all those. The spirit meets the fellow spirits of our blood kindred, which is pretty cool. Our ancestors. Oh. Little spiritualism there. Uh, and the spirit must move beyond the dreams of the passionate body to connect with the celestial body and realize that it is dead. So we're also not confident we're dead at first. We're meeting all our relatives. But for some reason, it's not dawning on us. I guess it's a little bit like being in a dream. Hmm. The celestial body, once it connects with the spirit, dreams the events of a life backward through time, teaching the consequences of our actions. So we move backward. The next phase is the shiftings in which a person lives out the opposite of their lives. This is such a cool idea (laughs) where you make all the opposite choices that you made in your life. What? Really? Yeah. Isn't that neat? Yeah. Yeah, That's kind of fun. (laughs) Again, remember the push and pull, right? This is about moving back and forth between the poles. uh, So by dreaming through these alternatives, we expiate ourselves of our unmet desires. So we cleanse ourselves. The individual then moves temporarily out of the sway of the gyres and into a sphere, being out of space and time and everywhere at once. Everything that has transpired to the spirit is conveyed to an entity that Yeats calls the ghostly self so that it's it's forgotten by the spirit in preparation for the next life. So this is where we're getting ready for our rebirth. The individual then seeks out a new husk and experiences a foreknowing of all the events that will happen in the next life. So at a certain point before we arrived, we knew everything that was going to happen to us. I wonder what happens with this podcast. I knew at one point. It feels as though... How many episodes will we do? It feels (laughs) as though... The celestial and passionate bodies travel along with the spirit from lifetime to lifetime, but the husk alternates. In the womb, the spirit experiences the vision of friends, sort of like the vision of blood kindred at death, and then we're born again. So in the womb, you meet all your friends that you would know. We all knew each other in the womb. <laughs> I guess you I don't know, know how I knew you guys, because I was in the, the womb, womb earlier than you. But mm. Everything was so dark and warm. All right, I'm going to close today uh, by talking about Yeats's best-known poem. Do you guys know what that is? Mm-mm. It's called The Second Coming. The Second Coming is often read as a comment on the decline of European, if not Western, civilization, but it is full of Yeats's occult symbolism, suggesting other meanings. The poem begins with his telltale gyre turning and turning. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dim tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Written in 1920, these words reflect the pain of the First World War and fear for the future. Yates was born the year the American Civil War ended, a conflict that cost as many as 750,000 lives. Hmm. But in his lifetime, 
warfare had grown exponentially deadlier. World War I cost the lives of 20 million, with 20 million more wounded, sometimes in life-altering ways, with limbs torn off, faces burnt off, and sundry other horrors. But we have to remember the gyre. While these lines suggest a darkness dawning, the best and worst are relative terms. An era of light is always followed by an era of darkness, which is, in turn, followed by an era of light. The clearly labeled oppositions in the context of the gyre suggest the ever-changing nature of reality. Let's get the second stanza here. The poem continues. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming! Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it reel shadows of the indigent desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know the twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmares by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Sounds dark, right? Mm-hmm. The Spiritus Mundi, or Spirit of the World, has awakened the harbinger of the next age. We can read this through a Christian paradigm as an antichrist, the rough beast slouching through the desert. Sounds like the antichrist going to Bethlehem. <laughs> but... We can also read it in terms Yeats has suggested in his vision, which was completed five years after this poem. Yeats foresees a coming pagan apocalypse in which the Christian world would give way to new ways of knowing and believing, more in line with the ancient Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Romans than the monotheistic Europeans and Americans. The Spiritus Mundi is awakening a rough beast who will pull down the Christian world as we know it and build a new world, a pagan world. For Yeats, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially given the horrors visited on creation by the two millennia of Christian power. Well, what do we think, gang? Do we know Yeats now? I don't know. I think like with all great poems, like you can you can think that you know something about the poet after reading it, and I think that we certainly have found some secrets uh, to his thinking or perhaps his, his dreams. Um, but there's so many abstractions in it that, I don't know, we can't really ever be too sure. Mm-hmm. It's the symbolist in him, right? Like Edgar Allan Poe, there's, there's, uh, we can never say exactly what the raven is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he keeps his, he does keep secrets from us. We can feel the occultism, we can feel the paganism, we can feel Yeats. Uh, but I agree, Dan, there are aspects of him that slip away. What do you think, Savannah? Yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, it's, it's hard to get to know people without being there. But even when you do know people like as friends and stuff, like there's still parts of them that you don't know about either. So like, I don't know. I'm not very smart. So I can't, (laughs) I don't have a deep thing to talk about right now. (laughs) I think that's right. I mean, you also making me think of the, you know, we're talking about poets, but this is poetry just reflects the, complexity of getting to know another person we also hide in our own depths right so to say that we know yates we we don't even really know we try to know each other but there's always things that slip away much Mm -hmm. the same all right uh let's bring it on home do either of you know how to bring it on home i hereby 
adjourn and close this meeting of the alchemical actors until such a time as we get together and do it again, right? It's pretty close. Yeah, it was not bad. It's not bad. Not a couple bad. words here and there. Nice job, Savannah. Thank you. <laughs> Dan's heard it many times as he edited the YouTube. <laughs> I have. I lay awake at night and recite it to myself. Oh, shoot. I should let you do it then. <laughs> no, yours was much better. It's not bad. Not bad at all. Uh, we want to thank Jacob Wheatley uh, for doing the voice of Robarts, and John Cook is back back in the saddle doing the voice of Yates for us today. Thank you, John. Joining me at the mic, we had Savannah Verrett, our sister of the 84th degree. Goodbye, and I just wanted to say real fast, and I didn't want to interrupt you during it, but every time you said Damon, I all I could hear was Dayman, like, always funny, <laughs> like, ah! Fighter of the Nightman. <laughs> Once again, but for Yates, the Damon is the Nightman. So. Yes. <laughs> it all and comes Dan together. Rosendale, I have the archive. I'm not the Nightman. You are not the <laughs> Nightman. No. I'm, I'm glad to be here, and I hope all of our listeners are doing well. You are the YouTube man. <laughs> I try to be. <laughs> This is it for our conversation about the 19th century, although we are continuing our discussion of the fictional occult as we move into the works of H.P. Lovecraft and uh, Robert E. Howard, who invented Conan the Barbarian, and then uh, we're going to get into some reptilians. So there's more fun to come in this series. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Hope you're having a great summer. I am probably having a baby. Uh, We are at episode... Probably. Well, I, mean, I don't know, because this is posting in a, in a little while. Uh, this, it, I also want to make a note here, I guess at the end, that technically this will be number 100 in our episode series, but it is not our 100th episode, because we've posted a couple of previews. Yeah, but it, it's still, it's number 100, so that's neat. Yay! Hooray! <laughs> Go us. Catch us next time here on A Call Confessions. See you.